Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jude. Uh, I don't have the, the reference there. Uh, last time we were together in Genesis 5, we contemplated what, what I will call the alien nature of the pre-flood era of human history. We were thinking about the fact that that time in history was very, very different. So different, in fact, that we cannot really gain a proper relationship in our minds to it. We have little glimmers. We'll talk more next week about some of the other glimmers that we have in the, in the Word of God as it relates to what the what, what would call the pre-flood or, or many in theology will call it the pre-diluvian time and various elements of that, that pre-diluvian time, what it was like, what the people were like. We know that they lived a very, very long time, right? People are living into the, the 900s as it relates to their age. And we thought through what that might have meant. We understand that there was already thousands of years ago, well before what people would call the, the Bronze Age or the Iron Age, that, that they, there were workers of brass, there were workers of iron, there were, wor- there were people that were creating instruments, uh, that there were cities, that there was civilization. Uh, but then we, we, we don't have a reference point to understand any of it because it was wiped away in the flood. I also mentioned uh, that there were poten- potentially a few remnants that carried over as I talked through some of the what, what we would call the ancient marvels, things that we might wonder about how ancient man figured out how to do certain things. And with some of them, they're dated in such a way that we might actually be able to confidently say, well, maybe it wasn't ancient man post-flood, but ancient man pre-flood. And if you have 900 years to perfect your craft, and you have 10 generations of people that have 900 years to perfect their craft, and you're all working together to put things together, you might be able to come up with some pretty magnificent things. And so we, we worked through all of that together. Uh, we know little about that time, but the genealogy helped us. And we were, that's what we were, were thinking about last time, the various ways that the genealogy helped us. First, that things were dramatically different before the flood. Second, uh, then we considered the, the legacy of this unique man named Enoch, a man who was translated, Hebrews tells us, so that he would not see death, and that because during his life he bore the testimony that he pleased God. We also learned about the oldest recorded man, Methuselah, and just as a, as a point of reference that Methuselah lived longer even than his son Lamech, he died in the same year that the flood came upon the earth, dying at the age of 969 years old. And then finally, uh, last week, we learned the stated purpose for Noah at his birth, that in his generation, he would comfort the world concerning the curse which God had put upon man concerning the ground that he tilled. And I mentioned just a little bit of that. Uh, I believe that that's keyed in, as we'll see, uh, after the flood to the reality of the seasons themselves and what and, and as we think through that idea that there were not necessarily seasons prior to the flood, we also talked about the fact that there's nothing in the Bible. The Bible says early in Genesis that the Lord had not caused it to rain, had not caused rain to fall upon the earth, but a mist watered the ground. And we see nothing that, that tells us that that was any different up until the flood. And so it's possible that there were no seasons, that the time that, that, that things were very temperate the entire year round, that there was a mist that watered the earth all year round, that there was no rain. Uh, that things were dramatically different. Now, all of these are possibilities. We don't have great insight into them. Uh, But all of that gives us uh, uh, a a thought process that helps us relate ourselves not just to the Bible, maybe not even primarily to the Bible, but more to history and then what is called science today. And I talked about the fact that as historians and scientists think through things, 
they do so on the principle that, that the earth has had this gradual progression over time. And much of that they've made up in their minds and imaginations as to what that, that, that procession looks like. But they are making dramatic assumptions. And when we read about a flood about 4,000 years ago, that fundamentally changes the dramatic assumptions that we are making about this world, particularly anything that would have happened prior to that point. And as we think through the cycles of, 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 of climates and of history and, and, and of things that have come and, and, and the way that we are assessing things, we take into account the possibility of a worldwide flood and it does change the equation a little bit. And that's worth us thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking through. Now, I told you in that message that we would be coming back this week to Enoch for just a little bit longer. Enoch is a unique figure in the biblical record. One of two men that the Bible says were translated into heaven rather than dying, Enoch and Elijah. And I mentioned last time that it is for this reason that some people believe that Enoch and, <coughs> excuse me, and Elijah will be the two witnesses uh, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, that since those are the two men... <coughs> Thank you, Nathaniel. He's going to go get me some water, I think. Uh, it's got something in the back of my throat that won't let me go. Uh, <coughs> um, um, but as, as those are the two men on earth who have not yet seen death, perhaps they are the two that are going to come, do these miracles, profess uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then, of course, will be killed toward the middle of the tribulation. Um, by the one that we know of as Antichrist. And that's a possibility. Uh, the Bible says that Enoch was translated because he had the testimony that he pleased God. So we know a little something about his character. And I told you last time that there was one more reference in the New Testament in regard to Enoch, which I wanted to explore further with you. And today is the day that we do that. Do, do that. There, there's not an excessive amount of information about Enoch in the Bible, and I was a little bit hesitant to do this because I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. It's uh, not my, it's not my uh, uh, characteristic mo to take a couple of little snippets of the Bible and turn it into a a, a massive deal. But I am going to use Enoch as a bit of a springboard today. This will be a topical message of sorts as a springboard into a, a, another line of teaching, another line of thinking, but also something which I believe will help us, thank you, sir, draw us back to maybe some insight into what was happening in Enoch's day and the things that we can understand about Enoch from the fact that he gave this prophecy that we're about to read in the book of Jude. So the passage in question is Jude verses 14 and 15. I say Jude verses 14 and 15 because Jude only has one chapter. Um, there, there are not chapter divisions in Jude. It's a very, very short letter. And in verses 14 and 15, the Bible says this. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, so you might understand that we've jumped very much into context here to read a prophecy which Enoch gave during his life. And I intend to spend most of our time this morning exploring uh, all of Jude. We're not just going to jump into verses 14 and 15. We're going to begin back in verse 1 in just a little bit. But first I want to establish a couple of other things. Set out a couple of other points 
before we dig into this prophecy in Jude. First, notice that Jude does not pull this prophecy out of thin air. Uh, Much to the contrary, this prophecy is actually quoted from the book of Enoch, specifically the book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9. And this is not the only time that Jude draws from the book of Enoch. He also references the book of Enoch when he speaks of Michael the archangel contending with Satan over the body of Moses. And this has led many to say that, well, since the Bible quotes the book of Enoch, then the book of Enoch probably ought to be in the Bible as well. It should be included in Scripture. It is obviously true because Jude quotes from it. Uh, But this would be a logical fallacy of sorts, wouldn't it? Because something contains true statements... Therefore, it makes the whole thing true, or because the thing contains statements which the Bible agrees with, therefore, it must be inspired as the Bible is inspired. But this does not really follow. It's akin to me saying that my wife has brown hair and is six feet tall, and because my wife does indeed have brown hair, therefore, she must be six feet tall. No, one can while the other can be false. One can be right, and the other is wrong. The whole statement is false because a part of the statement is false. The book of Enoch contains what we would understand because Jude quotes from it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these true statements. A true prophecy that Enoch gave in his days in regard to the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. The book of Enoch also speaks to this idea that Michael the archangel contended against Satan over the body of Moses. Something which we regard as true because it's within the inspired scriptures. That does not intrinsically mean that the book of Enoch itself is entirely reliable. Nor does it mean that it ought to be considered inspired scripture itself. And while we're on the uh, the, the, the topic of that, let's take a moment just to remember what we know about the nature of biblical inspiration. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The phrase inspiration of God literally means here that, the, that all scripture is God-breathed. And this doctrine teaches us that at the time that the words of scripture were penned, God chose which words would be written down, and they were written down as he willed them to be written down. We therefore understand the originals, the original words, to be what we call infallible, without error. And we extend this infallibility to doctrine, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, that the word of God is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And so we recognize that if the word of God is infallible, then the things unto which God has spoke as it relates to doctrines, uh, doctrine is infallible as well. Then we have extended this within the Christian faith to other areas also, so that we believe that the word of God is inspired and inerrant in every area upon which the Bible authoritatively speaks. So whether that be history, whether that be science, or whatever it might be, To whatever extent that the Word of God authoritatively speaks on a topic, we believe that that authority to be true. If the Word of God, if God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, 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 through, through 
the inspiration of his Holy Spirit unto men inspires the word of God to write down elements of history, we believe that God had those elements penned accurately. To whatever degree God references himself to various elements of scientific import, we believe that God had those inspired accurately. Thus, we believe that the Bible is true. Now, this doesn't mean that every reference will invariably be accurate to science or philosophy or history. And what I mean by that is this. When the Bible speaks to science, we believe the science to be sound. But when the Bible is, let's say, speaking in poetic terms. So David is writing in the book of Psalms about God uh, resting the earth and the pillars of the earth, right? We do not necessarily believe that within the, the scope of poetry, that when God speaks of the pillars of the earth, that that means that the earth is actually resting on pillars. No, this is poetic license. This is something that we do all the time. We do not believe that, that God was speaking authoritatively as it relates to scientific inquiry when Joshua prays and says, Lord, let the sun stand still as they were fighting that great battle in the book of Joshua. No, we do not believe that that's how that worked. Rather, in the same way that I would look, I would go up to one of my children in the morning and I would say, wasn't that a lovely sunrise this morning? I am not attempting to make an accurate scientific uh, statement about the sun and about our relationship to the sun when I call the sunrise a sunrise. Right? When Joshua was asking for the sun to stand still, he was speaking in relation to himself and in relation to the way that they perceived the sun. In the same way that we perceive the sun to rise in the morning and set in the evening, even though, as we know from science, the sun does not rise, nor does it set, but rather the earth is revolving. And as it does so, the sun comes into view and then goes out of view. And so in the same way, we recognize that the Bible is speaking to those things in a manner that we would understand, in a manner that would be appropriate to the narrative at hand or to the poetic license. But then when the Bible does speak to something in a scientific or historical way, we would recognize it as being accurate. So 2 Timothy helps us understand that the Bible is God-breathed and thus accurate. But then how does this work? And this is where 2 Peter 1 helps us. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us here that God did not take over the bodies of holy men. They, were not, they did not become robots. They did not fall into a trance, per se. Nor were these men simply receiving concepts and then kind of summarizing them as they wrote the scriptures. But rather, there's an in-between here. That whole, the Holy Spirit moved in these men to say and subsequently to write those things that God intended them to say for the speaking prophets and write for the writing prophets. So that we can confidently say that the scriptures are not available to private interpretation. What does that mean? That means that I don't get to make up for myself what the Bible is saying. And you don't get to make up for yourself what the Bible is saying. But rather, God had an intended meaning when he inspired men to write. And it is not our privilege to determine what the Bible means. It's our privilege to determine what God meant when he had it penned. And there's a big difference between those two. And this is why I've always encouraged you, if you're invited to a Bible study and you sit down to that Bible study and you're going to study the Bible, 
one of those common questions that comes up in Bible story is Bible study is what does this mean to you? That question is a fine question for the end of your study. But that question should never be the first question in your study. The first question is what did God meant when he had this penned? What does God intend to communicate here? Once you know what God intends to communicate, then you can say how does it apply to me? And that part is very subjective. But the word of God is not intended to be subjective. The word of God is not open to private interpretation. Much to the contrary, God has a meaning that he has intended for us. And it is our privilege and our responsibility to draw out that meaning through a proper um, interpretive method in order that we can know what God wants us to know. We can't just make it up for ourselves. Okay, so inspiration tells us what the Bible uh, originally intended. We see how God inspired the word of God, that he moved holy men of God, that they were moved, born along by the Holy Ghost to pen the words of Scripture. And that is where our doctrine of inspiration comes from. Now, it's also worth noting, just briefly, before we, we, we get back into focus here on Jude, it's worth noting that that's the doctrine of inspiration, not the doctrine of preservation. So everything I've just told you is how we know that the originals were accurate. Then we build upon that a second doctrinal idea, which is the doctrine of preservation, which is where we determine how we have any confidence that the Bible that we hold today, thousands of years later, is accurate. And that's actually a separate field of study altogether. I'm not going to touch on that today, but that is the doctrine of preservation, and it's worth looking into as well so that we can uh, know that we have the scriptures that God intended us to, that the 66 books in our Bible are the 66 books he intended. Why were there certain books that were around, speaking of the things of God that were left out, such as the book of Enoch? All of that is a part of the doctrine of preservation, not just the doctrine of inspiration. All right, framing our minds back into Jude. We learn, first of all, the fact that Jude quotes the book of Enoch. And that doesn't mean that all of Enoch is true. It contains true things, and we know this because it's found in inspired scripture, namely in this book, the book of Jude. The second thing to mention about this prophecy is that it does indicate something about the times in which Enoch lived. As we continue into Genesis 6 next time, we're going to quickly find our way to verses 5 and 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we will read this. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And then we'll see this, not next week, but a few weeks later in verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So we understand that in Noah's day, by the time we get to Noah... The earth is corrupt and filled with violence, wickedness, corruption. And within the context of this wickedness, we'll be introduced to this man, Noah, who is a righteous man who finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what Enoch's prophecy helps us to understand, perhaps contextualize, is how early it was that the earth began to truly be corrupted. Now, we thought of this when we thought of the genealogy of Cain, Right, we saw those first seven generations of up up to um, from from Adam to Lamech, and then the eighth generation there, the seventh generation from Cain in Lamech's sons and his daughter. 
And we, we saw in those days of Lamech the fact that uh, there was this song called the Song of the Sword. And I connected that Song of the Sword possibly, again, there's a lot of ambiguity in the text, but possibly to the idea that Lamech was uh, recognizing that through his son's ability to make brass and uh, implements of brass and of iron, that he was going to be able to forge weapons. And through these weapons, he was going to uh, be able to impose his will upon others. And so we saw these little glimmers of um, the corruption, of the anger, of, the, uh, of the, uh, the, the, the kind of perversion that began in Cain and obviously continued through his line to Lamech and to Lamech's children. And that, so there was that potential of violence, right, in Genesis chapter 4. There's little insight, however, prior to Noah's day of the extent of the influence of these wicked men, except that we know this. At the very least in the days of Enoch, and Enoch was translated in 987, according to this, there's, there's obviously some slush room depending on which uh, dating method you use, but uh, well before Noah's birth, Enoch was translated. And in Enoch's day, he gave this prophecy about ungodly men who were committing ungodly, wicked acts, so much so that the Lord would come with ten thousands of his saints and he would, he would bring justice and vengeance. And so we consider the timing of this prophecy. You'll notice as well from this, again, if you follow these lines where Enoch is here, that Lamech was born not too long after Enoch, and they were actually contemporaries. And if we were to assume that what Tubal-Cain was doing was inventing weapons of destruction, as we kind of have been doing, and Lamech was determined to use these weapons to impose himself upon his enemies, and of course that's somewhat speculative, right? But it's, it is at least consistent that toward the end of Enoch's days... It's possible that the earth would have begun this, would have been in this place where violence was beginning to fill the earth. So that when Enoch gives this prophecy, where he's talking about ungodly men committing ungodly acts that will be worthy of God's vengeance and justice, that there would have actually been a contextual reason for that prophecy to be given. That before Enoch is translated, he says, look, this wickedness is here. It's going to get a whole lot worse and then God is going to come and he is going to judge. Now, that being said, he does not give a prophecy of the flood, does he? He gives a prophecy of something that we'll see in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But either way, we know that by this time, it seems, by the time of Enoch's departure, it seems as though there was enough wickedness upon the earth that it would warrant this great prophecy of judgment that Enoch gave in his days. Okay, so all of that was kind of the foundation. Now let's look into the book of Jude. If you're still there, we're going to begin in verse 1. The Bible says this, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So the book of Jude begins with Jude identifying himself as the brother of James and so the half-brother of Jesus and addressing himself unto believers in the church. And what he says is he desired his purpose, his intended purpose was that he would write unto them of the common salvation, of the grace of God through the finished work of 
of Jesus Christ alone. It would have been very, very interesting to know what Jude would have had to say on that topic, but we don't get that because he says there was something more needful that I needed to talk about instead. And the needful thing that I needed to talk about, he says in verse 3, is that he needed to encourage them, to exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith which had once been given to the saints. That word there meaning once for all given, that the Lord had given this faith unto the believers and that they needed to earnestly contend for that faith. And he goes on to express why it is that this is so important in verse 4. He says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude warns that there are men who have crept in unawares. Now the idea here, the, the, the idea of, of creeping in unawares, creeping into what? I'm not going to be able to preach on all of Jude. I'd love to dig in more. I actually have done a Tuesday night series on Jude before. Maybe we'll bubble it up because I think most of you weren't here when I did it. Um, but uh, the idea of, of this crept in unawares is that there are people who have, if you will, infiltrated the church. Who have come into the church and who are teaching things in the church that are outside of sound doctrine. And as he describes these ungodly men, he says that they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. This is the concept that Paul warns about in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? A group of false teachers who say that because we have grace, that means that we don't have to worry about sin, that God has taken sin, that we are under grace. Therefore, you can do whatever you will because of this concept of grace, which is an abuse of the doctrine of grace. And he says that they even deny the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is much of what we're going to be learning about in 1 John. 1 John telling us in chapter 2, as we continue through the weeks, we'll be getting there in just a couple of weeks, warning us about antichrists who have come into the world who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And today, this twofold description of these men falls into the category of what we would call false teachers or maybe false prophets. Men, and today also a, a very large number, it may even be tipping the scale toward more women than men in this category, who claim to be believers, but who teach heresy in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jude gives two such heresies here. First, that because God has purchased the grace for us that we are free to live in sin without shame or consequence. And then second, as I mentioned, denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jude warns against these men, he does so in a unique way. Rather than rest upon what they are teaching, as it would seem Jude expected them to know what they were teaching already, it probably means that they were quite evident among them and that there were already controversies happening in the church surrounding these false doctrines and these false teachers. Jude instead takes his time to remind the readers what God has said about how he's going to treat false teachers. And this is a really interesting thing. This is a very interesting strategy. Jude, when he, when he compels them to contend for the faith, he is not going to teach them what the, what the common faith is. He's assuming they know that. He's going to teach them why it is they need to contend because of the consequences that will fall upon those who teach a false faith. And so he continues. 
I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude's reminding his readers of things, he says, which they should already know and have known. Reminding them of consequences about how these wicked men are going to be destroyed. And he begins with those who rejected God in the days of the Exodus, perverting the promises of God, misrepresenting God's intentions, and so leading men away from him. We might think about the day that the 12 spies came out of Canaan, right? And, and, and 10 were bad and 2 were good, as the, as the child song says, right? And those 10 spies that said, no, we need to go back. We need to go back to Egypt. We cannot handle their giants in the land. And Joshua and Caleb getting up and saying, no, 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 no. If God favors us, he will give us this land. Or we think of those who murmured... Uh, we'll, we'll see more specifically of Korah in, in a little bit here. He also talks about the angels who kept not their first estate. Now, I'm not going to speak to this today. We're going to talk about this next week and the week after when we get to what is commonly con- uh, considered to be the Nephilim uh, in Genesis chapter 6. And we'll discuss, we'll walk through what they are, what they aren't, what the Bible says, what the Bible doesn't say, how this passage here about the angels that left their first estate uh, falls into that. And then finally, Jude references the perversions of Sodom and Gomorrah and among the cities that were around them who perverted the design of God in sexuality and led others to do the same. And all of these, he says, met with the same swift and determined judgment of God, utter destruction. And Jude then connects these three examples to false teachers in the days of the New Testament. He says, likewise, also these filthy dreamers, That would be those in Jude's day. That would be those that were in the church, those who had crept in unawares, who Jude is warning against, who he's exhorting the people to contend against. He says, these filthy dreamers, they defile the flesh, they despise dominion, they speak evil of dignities. Verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of things which they know not. But which they know naturally, but what they know naturally, excuse me, as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I'd love to spend a lot more time on his uh, poetic uh, metaphors and similes here. It's, it's, um, uh, it, it, it's intense. May I use that word? The way he's describing these, these false teachers and the direction in which they go, it is, and there's an intensity to it. So he calls these men filthy dreamers, men of perversion, men of rebellion, men of pride. So arrogant and self-assured are these men, Jude describes, that they have even taken upon themselves liberties which the archangel Michael would not take in interaction with 
with the spiritual authorities, specifically the devil and his angels. He says, Michael the archangel would not bring railing accusations against Satan because though Satan is evil, he is still an authority. God has ordained for him authority. He is still powerful. He has been given that authority by God. Thus, when Michael was contending with Satan over the body of Moses, again from the book of Enoch, he would not... He would not himself rail against Satan, but simply say, the Lord rebuke thee. He would appeal to the authority of God to rebuke Satan because he knew that he had no authority in himself to rebuke Satan. Now compare that to our televangelists, nowadays probably YouTube evangelists, who are openly and very happily, and they've been doing this for generations now, rebuking Satan themselves rebuking the principalities and powers. And this has been an open manifestation, an open evidence of false teachers for generations. And you see that and you say, even Michael the archangel does not do that. This person is a spot in our feast of charity. He is one of these of whom Jude is warning against. And Jude says that they're speaking against things of which they know nothing about. There are entire volumes of books written about the spirit realm. And I warned you about this when we were in our spiritual warfare series. The majority of the information that these people get about the spirit realm is from former Satanists, former high priests of the Church of Satan. Where are they getting their information from? From their Satan worship. They were communing with some demonic entity and the demonic entity was telling them things. I am not going to rest upon the authority of someone who got their information from demons as a part of my spiritual warfare battle. It's not going to happen that way. Demons are liars. Satan is the father of lies. And if he can convince Christians to do what he, to, 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 to eat up all of the information that he's giving them, saying you're getting, you're getting inside information from the enemy, Satan's more than happy to let us be distracted by that inside information. We have what we need in what God has given us. Let's stick to what God has given us and not to the words of men, not to the reasoning of men, and certainly not to the inside information they get from the demonic, from from any sort of demonic communication that they have received. So Jude says, woe unto them. He says that they've gone the way of Cain. Well, we've already studied the way of Cain, right? A man who pursued his own truths and his own ideas at the expense of the word of God. He says that they've gone toward the error of Balaam, referencing Numbers chapter 22 and the prophet Balaam, who interacted with the Lord on a very real level, and yet in the name of God did that which was contrary to the word of God, seeking the blessing of God, but doing it outside the will of God, and so was destroyed. And then finally, he associates them with the gainsaying of Korah. Korah being found in Numbers chapter 16. That was the group of men who stood against the authority of Moses and Aaron, rebelling against God's ordained leaders, seeking the authority and the position for themselves of which they had no spiritual right to have. These are the three examples that we are given here of the way that these false teachers have gone. Now, it didn't go real well for Cain, but Cain got the the best end of the bargain as it relates to those three men. Balaam was destroyed by the nation of Israel, and Korah was absolutely and utterly destroyed by the fire of God. And so we see here tremendous judgment once again. To this end, Jude calls them spots in their feasts of charity. This is a historical reference to something called the love feast. 
something that was regularly done in the church in the early days. A lot of times it would be, um, it would be added to, or it would, it would, it would accompany uh, the Lord's Supper. It would, it would accompany communion. They'd, they'd partake in communion around this feast of charity, um, what we would call today a dinner on the grounds, right? Um, it would be a, a, where they'd all come together. They'd eat together. They'd fellowship together. And they'd uh, have the Lord's table together as well. And he says, these are spots in your feast of charity. They come together. They say that, that, that they are coming together in unity and in love, which is what this meal is supposed to be about. It says that we're coming together to love the Lord and, to, and unto sound doctrine, but they are, they are false teachers. They are they're spots in the feast. They're a taint. They're a cancer. They're an infection. And of these, Jude says that unto these men is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then all of the other... Uh, Intense, I'll use that word again, descriptions. Feeding themselves without fear at these, at these feasts of charity. Clouds without water, carried of winds. So they, they have cl- they're, they're clouds, which of course when you see clouds, you say, oh good, it's going to rain, we need that. But they produce nothing, right? They are trees without fruit. Or their fruit is withered, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. They are wandering stars. And then again, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And this brings us to Enoch's prophecy. That's the foundation for everything that, that God ha- has warned about as it relates to, to the fa- these false teachers. And then, and then he brings Enoch into it. And that's where we read, and I'll read it again, verses 14 and 15. Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, if you were to go read Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, the book of Enoch, you would walk away with the conviction that Enoch was speaking of all wickedness when he pronounces this prophecy of judgment. But when we look into the context of Jude, the context of Jude tells us that this is particularly referencing this idea of these false teachers, these false representatives. Now, we know that what Enoch has to say here is yet to come. Because we have not seen a time, as far as the Bible has told us, in in history where the Lord has come with ten thousands of his saints. The earliest known description of of an event which might might reliably be connected to this is Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, which says this. John writing, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had, his, uh, had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Enoch prophesied, I believe, of this event. 
If, if we try to connect Scripture with Scripture, this is, I think, the closest we can get where the Lord is returning and He's returning uh, with the armies in heaven that are on white horses as, as they come and they tread the wine presses of the wrath of God upon the earth. And Enoch, as he prophesies of this event, does not just do so in the context of all ungodly men, but more specifically, as Jude says, focusing in upon the tremendous judgment that will fall upon the men and women who have misrepresented the truth of God and of his word. And to this end, we are reminded of the importance and the tr of truth and of sound doctrine. And we're warned not just to reject false teachers who misrepresent the faith that was once delivered to the faith, but that we earnestly contend against these false teachers and against their false doctrines lest we, like the married daughters of Lot, who would not listen to his pleas, perish in the fire, as they perished in the fire and brimstone of Sodom, that we as well would get so used to, it would become so flippant to us that there, are this, there is this error around us. Yes, Lot was in the city of Sodom. His family was living in the city of Sodom. And somehow, even in the midst of the city of Sodom, he had daughters who were married. Right? Therefore, we know that, that not everyone in Sodom was completely overcome. And yet those married daughters, when they heard Lot say, we've got to get out of this city, it is so overcome with wickedness that the Lord has decided to destroy it. They said, it can't be that bad, Dad. You're crazy. We're staying. And that's the danger. It's not just that we hold fast to sound doctrine, but we contend against false doctrine for the sake of those who are around us. That Lot held fast to sound doctrine. He was a righteous man grieved in a city of sinners. But because he did not contend against false doctrine, his children were caught up in it. Lest we be drawn away like many in Israel by a mixed multitude that reside in the camp of the saints, but whose faithlessness leads to the destruction of many. That when the mixed multitude in the Exodus began to murmur and complain against Moses and against Aaron because they didn't have food or they didn't have meat or they didn't have water or because there were giants in the land, not only did the mixed multitude murmur and complain, but it drew away many of the nation because they were in their midst. All the way back to Enoch's day, the prophet foresaw the final fate of those who would stand against the truths of the living God. The God who will execute judgment upon all will convict the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. You notice the repetition there. Paper was of a bit of a premium. Parchment, papyrus. They didn't waste words in that day. But God saw fit to repeat ungodly four times within that, the, those verses, telling us just how important, just how ungodly, just how wicked God sees these false teachers. And the end of verse 15 tells us that Enoch spoke up against this evil which resided among him. These ungodly sinners spoke against him as it has always been so. And that when those who tell lies in Jesus' name are confronted with the truths of God's word, they rail in their pride and anger against the messenger. And it was that way in Enoch's day. And it's still that way in our own. And this is where we draw into what Jude draws into as it relates to application. 
So Jude says in verse 16, These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouths speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They murmur, they complain, they pursue their own lust, they brag. This last phrase here, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. They elevate men because it brings them advantage. Right? They elevate men. They draw men up to a, a, a higher elevation than they deserve spiritually because it brings to them natural gain. Watch out for this. These are the, these are the tactics of false teachers. And we would presume, perhaps, that this was the environment in which Enoch lived as well. That he, as one who walked with God, perhaps the first one chosen of God as he walked with God to be a prophet of God against false teachings, against false doctrines, against pagan ideas, pagan ideas which we know would carry forward as we'll see them in in the days of Babel, in the days of Nimrod. And again, we're speculating. Everything about the pre-flood world is speculation. But what we speculate is perhaps Enoch was the first to contend against these ideas. And if he was, then we have a general idea of when false doctrine really began to take hold. These false ideas really began to pervade the earth. And if that's true, then we'd say probably in the days of Lamech, which is perhaps why the Bible spent some time focusing on Lamech, unlike the others in the line of Cain or even Lamech's children. Lamech is the focus because something happened in the days of Lamech. Those were also the days of Enoch. And so we are taught of Enoch. He's a man who walked with God. He was a prophet of the living God. He perhaps found himself living in days of lies, in days of deceit, in days of mockery, in days of arrogance. He chose in his day, it would seem, to earnestly contend for the faith, to walk with God. He had this testimony that he pleased God, and so the Lord translated him. But then what can we learn? And as I said, Jude brings application to bear. And this is the application for us today, verses 17 to 23. But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The apostles of our Lord, and indeed the Lord Jesus himself, promised that in the last days, such men would, be, would, would, would abound. Men described as mockers, men who walk after their own lusts, men who divide the saints. They separate themselves. They divide the saints among each other against truth. They come into a church and they act like a wedge in that church and they divide that church along lines of truth and error. Men who live, as the scriptures say here, that they are, men, they are sensual men, living by their senses, living by their feelings, living by their emotions, living by their senses, rather than living by truth. When Jesus walked upon the earth, when he was tempted of Satan, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. These are men who do the opposite. 
Men who claim to represent God but do not have the spirit of God. As Timothy would warn us, men who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And of course, Paul's exhortation there would be of, of such turn away, from such turn away. But then Jude says, But ye, beloved, in contrast, beloved. And then he gives a command, and the command is this, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that command is modified by three other ideas. First, build up yourselves in your most holy faith. Second, pray in the Holy Ghost. And then finally, look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So what is this exhortation? Let me go back here and you can... See that for yourself. So what is this exhortation? The exhortation is that we guard ourselves. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We keep the main thing the main thing. That we look out for those who are tainted, who are dividers, who are sensual, who uh, are taking upon themselves authority that is not theirs to take on, who, who, whose, whose doctrines, whose teachings, whose exhortations are rooted in pride, and a big one today, rooted in material gain. They tell you something of the word of God and then the rest of the time is them asking you for money. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And as we're keeping ourselves in the love of God, build yourself up in your most, most holy faith. Learn of God. Be around others who love God. Edify one another. Build yourselves up. Stay encouraged. Stay strong. Keep growing. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep that connection to the Lord strong. Always. Pray together. Pray, pray individually. Keep the connection to the Lord strong. And we do all of this in hope. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We sang that song. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. We keep that faith. We look toward that end, that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing it will be worth it in the end. We build one another up in a different manner from these false teachers, not in lusts, not in feelings, not in platitudes, upon the faith of our fathers founded upon the word of God. We do this to keep ourselves rooted in the truth of God's love and in his mercy unto eternal life. And then finally, what do we do for others? Among some have compassion, making a difference. That doesn't mean our compassion makes a difference in people's lives, although it would. The idea of making a difference there means making a distinction. Come to those in compassion and show the difference. Show the distinction between them and you. Show the difference between false doctrine and true doctrine. Show the difference between someone who is pursuing lusts, who is pursuing lasciviousness, who is pursuing things for their own gain, who is elevating people for the sake of their own advancement, and those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and what that actually means. We have a privilege to be lights in the darkness. Well, yes, but there are so many false teachers out there. There are so many people saying so many different things. But do you know what they don't have? They don't have the Spirit of God. They don't have the answers because the answers come through the Spirit of God. They will not bear the fruit of the Spirit because they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. You have something they don't have if you are a believer here this morning. Show that thing. Make a difference. Show the difference. That's what that means. And others, 
we save with fear. Loving patience doesn't always work. Sometimes people just need to be told. So we compel them. We compel them, reminding them not just of, the Bible says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. For many, the goodness of God will lead them to repentance. They see the difference. They see the love of God. They see the truths of God. They see the effect in our lives. They see that there is this distinction. They say, I want that. You have something I don't have. How do I get what you have? Others, they just need to hear that there is a place of eternal judgment, that it is eternal, that it is hot, that they're going to go there if they don't get right with God. And that's our responsibility as well. Christians, we live in perilous times. Times of which Jude speaks. Times of mockers, times of false teachers, times of anger and violence. As we think of Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and we read through that, that very brief element of prophecy, this man Enoch was not an inconsequential man. We know he was not an inconsequential man because he was translated, one of only two men in the whole history of history to, to have that happen to him. We know he's not an inconsequential man because it doesn't just say that he lived a certain number of years. It says he walked with God for those years. We know he was not an inconsequential man because the book of Hebrews speaks of him. We know he's not inconsequential because the book of Jude speaks of him as well. And so we go to Jude and we say, what is this about Enoch? What can we learn from him? And what we learn from him is that perilous times were then, perilous times are now. But there's a promise that the Lord is coming and he's coming with 10,000 of his saints and he will take care of wickedness. So what do we do? We keep ourselves in the love of God. God has given us of his spirit. He has given us one another so that we might build each other up so that we might help each other stand in these last days, in these perilous days. This is not the time to go cloister yourself off and hide. This is the time to come together. This is the time to build each other up. Because judgment is coming. Many of us believe it will be soon. I think every generation of the church has believed that. And I think every generation of the church has a reason to believe that theirs is the generation that's right. So we believe, our, so we believe the Lord is probably coming soon. No man knows the day or the hour, but whether it be far or near, we know what we're supposed to be doing, right? Keep yourself in the love of God. Build one another up in our most holy faith. Pray together. Pray apart. Pray in the Holy Ghost. Look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. Earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly edify one another. Earnestly establish each other in the love of God. And then... Once we're established, we go out and we rescue all that we can. Some with compassion, showing that distinction, showing that there's something different about what we do. It's different from all of the other religions. It's different from all of the other truth claims because it is true. And of others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that is spotted by the flesh. If by any means they may avoid the unquenchable fires of eternal judgment. And may Enoch's faithfulness, may Enoch's legacy that he pleased God be a reminder unto us that nothing that we see today rests outside of God's knowledge, outside of God's expectations, outside of God's control, or outside of God's plan. And that there's coming a day where God will finish his plan, and until then, it's our job to be faithful. And may that give us the strength to do our part for him. 
Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.